the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Jessica Taylor. She's the chief of staff in the office of the president of Youth for Christ. We'll talk about Youth for Christ's remedy for teen loneliness. We're reading uh, several studies indicating that uh, teenagers are more lonely than ever, and there are implications to that loneliness. That's coming up in just the next segment. And in the second hour, we'll hear from Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. But first, Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and retaliated against a former employee who complained in violation of state and federal law. That, according to New York Attorney General Letitia James, uh, concluding in a 165-page report released on Tuesday. Now, that report was commissioned by the governor. The attorney general's probe, which included interviews with 179 people, uh, found that Cuomo harassed current and former staff members from 2013 to 2020. This is a sad day for New York because independent investigators have concluded that Governor Cuomo sexually harassed multiple women and, in doing so, broke the law, James said in her statement. Well, the investigation's report is based on allegations from 11 different complainants, nine of whom have worked for Cuomo either in the past or at present. Well, former staff member Lindsay Boyland was the first to come forward with allegations detailing encounters with the governor in a um, uh, medium post in February. Well, Boyland alleged that the governor made multiple inappropriate comments to her, including, well, we won't go into the details. Several other women accused Cuomo of making inappropriate comments and engaging in unwanted touching, the most egregious being from an anonymous executive assistant who claims that he invited her and uh, uh, his assistant to engage in inappropriate conduct. Meanwhile, President Biden called on uh, Governor Cuomo to resign on Tuesday after a report from the New York State Attorney General found that the governor had harassed almost a dozen women in violation of federal and state law. The president said he stands by a previous statement he made in March that Cuomo should resign if an investigation substantiated allegations of sexual harassment. If the invasion uh, investigation rather confirms the claim of the women, um, should Cuomo resign? ABC George Stephanopoulos asked the president at the time. Yes, Biden said back in March. I think he'll probably end up being prosecuted, too. Well, asked if he believed Cuomo should be impeached if he refuses to resign. The president replied, let's take one thing at a time here. I think he should resign, he added. I understand that the state legislature may decide to impeach. I don't know that f- uh, for a fact. Well, Biden's comments come after State Attorney General um, Letitia James concluded a month's long probe into the harassment allegations against the governor, culminating in the 165-page report. The investigation found that Cuomo harassed 11 women, including nine current and former state employees. Well, do you remember when the media were in love with Andrew Cuomo? Uh, well, I certainly do. Now that uh, he's proven um, to have fallen short, the media's love fest with the uh, Democrat New York governor looks all the more embarrassing in hindsight. 
Well, this morning, as I mentioned, the attorney general held a briefing where she and a team of investigators announced the governor uh, was, in fact, found guilty of a number of offenses. Cuomo previously has denied any wrongdoing and did so again today. Only this time he had images of him uh, hugging and kissing males and females, saying that's just how my mom taught me to behave. Well, these findings aren't just a serious problem for the governor. They're also a big mess for the media, who since early 2020 have been showering him with praise and adulation. For a refresher, you can uh, just consider uh, what has happened up to this point. Back during the start of the coronavirus pandemic, TV journalists described Cuomo as brave, honest, and even the leader of the Democratic Party. MSNBC's host Joy Reid even claimed that he had become a kind of acting president. But the most acute case of Cuomo fever was, of course, CNN's Brian Stetler, who closed the March 22nd, 2020 edition of Reliable Sources with this proclamation. Dealing with hardship actually makes you stronger. That's what Governor Cuomo said earlier today. That's what I'm going to, uh, to kids right now at home. Get a grip, Brian. Well, the news establishments, uh, sappy past with uh, Cuomo, are making him look one, um, uh, well, a heck of a lot. Uh, more like Michael Avenatti, that is a cautionary tale about the media's adoration for, um, well, those that at the moment they uh, have fallen in love with. Yeah, rather interesting. Well, coming up, we're going to um, talk about a study that uh, came out recently. In fact, we talked about it here on the uh, the program. A study that shows that loneliness, particularly among adolescent girls, but teenagers in general, has been increasing worldwide since 2012. Now, researchers say the issue is tied to an increased use of smartphones and the Internet. Now, one would assume just the opposite would be the case, the connectivity that that technology provides. Well, the global pandemic, of course, made matters worse. Well, to combat teen loneliness, Youth for Christ has been reaching teenagers and connecting with them through this very challenging season. And we're going to talk with Dr. Jessica Taylor. Uh, As I mentioned, she's chief of staff with the Office of the President at Youth for Christ. She formerly worked here in Portland, in fact, was recruited from the Portland area to her current position. And we'll talk about the Youth for Christ's remedy for teen loneliness. And then in the second hour, we'll hear from uh, Jack Phillips in his latest book, The Cost of My Faith, which has been considerable. Before we go to break, I just want to mention that you are invited to join Jim Daly and focus on the family, as well as Amy Ford from Embrace Grace each Friday night, now through the end of August. They're uh, hosting a series of inspiring conversations to encourage you to live as a pro-life parent, a friend and everyday hero. Together, they're going to gather around a table each week with friends to discuss six unique topics surrounding life. Every episode will include guests from all walks of life, including doctors, college students, disabled persons, and pro-life leaders. You can find out more at FocusOnTheFamily.com slash life. And I would encourage you to do just that. But for now, we're looking forward to my conversation with Dr. Jessica Taylor, who will join me momentarily. Chief of Staff in the Office of the President of Youth for Christ. Uh, with their remedy for teen loneliness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, a new study shows that loneliness, particularly among adolescent girls, has been increasing worldwide since 2012. 
Well, researchers say the issue was uh, is tied to an increased use of smartphones and the Internet, uh, which is somewhat surprising. And the global pandemic, which isn't at all surprising, has made matters worse. Well, Youth for Christ has stepped into that void and they're making a difference in uh, meeting the needs of young people uh, who are experiencing well, that loneliness, Jessica, Dr. Jessica Taylor is the chief of staff in the office of the president of Youth for Christ. And she joins us to talk about Youth for Christ's remedy for teen loneliness. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with the ministry of Youth for Christ. When I was at the University of Oregon, I worked with Youth for Christ in uh, reaching out to high school students uh, in Eugene. But tell our listeners a little background of Youth for Christ so we can talk about uh, how you all are stepping into that uh, that void. I would love to. So Youth for Christ is an organization founded in 1944 with the purpose of engaging young people with the hope of Jesus. And since that time, we've tried to embody the words of our first president, Tory Johnson, who said, we want to be geared to the times and anchored to the rock. So to do that, we connect with local churches and like-minded partners, like your university, as you said, Mm -hmm. to bring the hope of Jesus to young people. And we do that through safe, caring relationships with adults who model walking alongside and encouraging young people in all the messy places they're navigating. And as leaders in YFC, we're committed to abiding with God in all of our lifestyles, being people of prayer, sharing the love of Christ, being people committed to social involvement in our communities. And we're blessed to be in over 140 chapters throughout the nation. And we're just more passionate than ever about going to where young people are and meeting them with a message of love. Now, I made reference to the study that shows that loneliness among adolescent girls in particular, but not limited to adolescent girls, teenagers in general, is uh, is epidemic. Is that what you are witnessing around the country? Absolutely, we are. And we know uh, a lot of times people feel like, hey, the fix is just Jesus. And although we know that that is true, we also know that kids actually need really practical help. And so YFC understands that the ultimate power for peace and joy is found in Christ. But we love meeting kids' needs where they are and sharing the love of Christ with them. And so we do that through relationships here. We recognize that technology, as you mentioned, uh, is partially to blame for the epidemic of young people feeling alone. And so we're finding ways to actually use technology for good instead of thinking that young people will suddenly stop being attached to their phones. We know that in this last year and a half, uh, it's really made issues worse. And so we're right there on the front lines, replacing ministry, innovating instead of just canceling opportunities for connection. And we're doing that on PlayStation, on Xbox Live, where our adults are gaming with young people, where we have a chapter who just did a ding-dong ditch challenge to say, (laughs) hey, we we, we rang your doorbell, we left treats. Um, Early in the pandemic, we had a YFC chapter take family photos of our teen parents as a way to remind them that they mattered. And right here in Portland, our Portland chapter held a campus life prom for students who missed out and who those special moments were missing because of the pandemic. We started a trendy size inclusive clothing closet in partnership with a local church to make sure, especially as you mentioned, young girls who are especially impacted by loneliness know that they're beautiful and that they're worth investing in. And so we're in juvenile detention centers, deaf and hard of hearing communities, military bases, trying to bring joy with our volunteers who genuinely care and just find ways to show up and show out for young people so that they know that they matter to God and to us. 
Well, you know, I think the the pandemic, as you mentioned, certainly made things more challenging. But somehow Youth for Christ has managed through innovation and creativity to continue to connect with young people and um, to express the love of Jesus and the value of each one of them in a way that I, I think has made a real difference. Yeah, we absolutely have. We also know that our leaders have gotten lonely, too. Adults, our own staff have been incredibly impacted by this collective trauma that we're all experiencing with COVID. And in September, we actually plan to convene our movement in Indianapolis so we can be poured into for this critical work with young people. We're really trying to take a holistic approach to community health and to discipleship that gets right in the face of the issues that people are coming up against. So they aren't alone facing the challenges of life. We just believe that's the best way to combat loneliness for every young person is to have an invitation to healthy community. Now, I know listeners are intrigued by uh, what you're describing. How can listeners partner with Youth for Christ to help serve and engage kids in our area? Absolutely. Well, nationally, they can visit us at www.yfc.net. And to learn more and get involved, they can also use the hashtag YFCBeTheStory or visit YFCBeTheStory.org. We'd also love to connect with you online or if you're local to Portland. Our chapter always needs resources and support, volunteers, prayer. We would love to partner with you, with your business, with your church to bring hope to our city and our nation. Now, when school resumes in the fall here and earlier in some places, um, how is Youth for Christ connecting with young people during that season? Are, I know that uh, typically there are gatherings that have taken place. Uh, there are small groups that have been a part of how Youth for Christ uh, ministers to and, and helps train and equip young people. How will What will that look like um, in this coming school year where there are still some restrictions and mask wearing and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's going to look adaptive based on whatever the guidelines are at the time. But we are still meeting with kids. We're going to their houses. We're having smaller gatherings. We're having large gatherings where we can and being safe. But we're, we're meeting kids where they're at. And we're connecting across the community, again, in local churches, local businesses, to say, well, how can we do this? How can we adapt so that that loneliness doesn't continue, that there is a safe place for them to be? Uh, in Oregon, that's looks like a lot of outdoor things this summer where we're still getting together a lot of phone calls, a lot of using our technology and social media to stay connected. And so we're excited about the next year, whatever challenges it brings, and we're ready to adapt. Now, my understanding is you have a Portland connection. I do. I was born and raised in Portland. I love Portland YFC and just absolutely love our city. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for uh, for Youth for Christ and the continued work that you all have been doing through this very challenging season. If uh, a parent, a grandparent, an aunt is listening today and they think, man, I would really like my nephew, I would love my son to connect with Youth for Christ. What do you say to parents and those who care for teenagers in their uh, their area, uh, how to connect them with uh, the local chapter of Youth for Christ? Absolutely. You can visit us at YFC.net and see all the information from our chapters across the nation. And so you can find a place to plug in. You will get a real person that wants to connect with you and ask you about your kid, ask you about uh, where they are needing adult mentorship, where they're needing connection, where they are in the community and how we can get them involved. We would love to hear from you. Now, as we uh, anticipate the start of a new school year with all its uh, challenges and the the necessity of uh, uh, adapting to new standards, how can we pray for Youth for Christ in general? 
Thank you for asking. We would cover your prayers. So I think that we need prayers for the same resilience everyone needs. This has been a difficult year, year and a half for folks. And so it can be discouraging, especially when you love to see the faces of people and you're so people oriented. This has been lonely for everyone. And so we can pray for resilience for that. We can pray that things open back up and that there's connection points that feel safe for people to start coming out of isolation and just pray for a spirit of togetherness and unity across all the dividing lines that have been Mm. uh, really prevalent this year as well, that we would know how to bring people together in that space. Well, I thank you for giving us a direction and how we might pray that this would be the best year yet for Youth for Christ as young people are returning to their classrooms and to their their schools and perhaps uh, have more of a felt need for fellowship and um, an openness to what Youth for Christ brings to a, a campus. I appreciate your faithfulness in serving both here in Portland and now um, in, in your national capacity. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much and bless you. You too. Again, Jessica Taylor, uh, Dr. Taylor is um, uh, serves as the chief of staff in the office of the president for Youth for Christ and uh, has done some significant work in ministering to young people in a season which began, uh, we're told, as early as 2012, uh, to experience a level of loneliness despite the technology that's designed to connect people together. Uh, we're designed to live in community, not just, um, you know, put words on a keypad. Uh, and Youth for Christ helps to facilitate that and to extend the love of Christ to many young people who desperately uh, need him. So keep them in your prayers and check out their website for more information on how to support and to follow what they're doing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we'll return to the day's headlines. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Biden's nominee to serve the U.S. Special Envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism once blasted Representative Ilhan Omar's controversial statements criticizing Israel. Well, Deborah Lipstad, a um, Dorrit professor of modern Jewish history and Holocaust studies at Emory University, was nominated on Friday to the anti-Semitism role, which carries the rank of ambassador. In March of 2019, she waded into the debate surrounding Omar at the time uh, after the Minnesota Democrat criticized pro-Israel Americans as having allegiance to a foreign country. The Washington Free Beacon reported at the time. Well, Omar later reaffirmed her remarks, though she had previously apologized for other statements. Uh, Critics also deemed anti-Semitic. Well, asked at the time if Omar's comments were textbook anti-Semitism, Lipstadt said, sadly, I believe it is. Dual loyalties is part of the textbook accusation against Jews. They're cosmopolitans, globalists, not loyal to their country or fellow citizens, end quote. And this is the president's nominee for the U.S. anti-Semitism envoy. Um, to represent the U.S. In other developments, Representative Zeldin says Democrats need to do more to speak out against anti-Semitism. This is perhaps President Biden's answer to that. Uh, Omar, Representative Omar, is being blasted for remarks about Jews in Congress. This is what a modern-day Muslim supremacist looks like, say critics. A Boston rabbi has been stabbed outside a synagogue. The suspect is in custody. And Nancy Pelosi is refusing to answer a question about Ilhan Omar's latest inflammatory statements this week, Jen Psaki has attacked Florida's Governor DeSantis. The governor's office fired back, saying Psaki is 
the one playing politics and the back and forth it goes. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Monday slammed the Florida governor over the his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, accusing the Republican governor of choosing politics over public health. And that really characterizes the debate that's going on all across the country. Governor DeSantis, an outspoken opponent of coronavirus restrictions like state level mask mandates, has been repeatedly floated as a potential 2024 challenger to President Biden. Well, during her daily press briefing on Monday, the White House press secretary said the Biden administration was ready and available to provide federal assistance, whether that is Florida or any other part of the country, after the Sunshine State broke two coronavirus-related records over the weekend with the highest number of reported cases in a day and the highest number of hospitalizations per capita. Twenty percent of the cases we're seeing in Florida, Saki said. Well, there are steps and precautions that can be taken, she continued, including encouraging people to get vaccinated, encouraging people to wear masks, including allowing schools to mandate masks and allowing kids to wear masks, which is not the current state of play in Florida. And so it goes. In other developments, uh, the DeSantis team reacted to headlines accusing him, the governor, of being anti-vax, saying the charges are unfair and baseless. Well, in the meantime, the Florida governor signed an executive order making masks optional in schools. Well, the White House press secretary has refused to give the number of breakthrough White House COVID cases, asking, why do you need that information? Well, transparency might be one answer. Now, uh, breakthrough cases is uh, someone who's been vaccinated and contracts uh, the coronavirus. Florida sees 21,000 plus coronavirus cases on Saturday, again, breaking a one day record. Well, a Democrat strategist tweet about Lindsey Graham's COVID diagnosis is rightly being panned. Kate Coyne McCoy, the chief strategist of the Rhode Island Democratic Party, faced swift criticism late Monday over a tweet about Senator Lindsey Graham's COVID-19 diagnosis. Now, the senator is vaccinated. The Republican from South Carolina, who had been fully vaccinated, announced earlier in the day that he uh, has come down with flu-like symptoms on Sunday. He said he was diagnosed with the virus on Monday by the House physician. His symptoms are mild, and he said he will be quarantining for 10 days. Quayne McCoy took to Twitter and posted, It's wrong to hope he dies from COVID, right? Asking for a friend. COVID... um, COVID is not over. Lindsey Graham, hashtag Lindsey Graham, she posted. Well, even at a time when the political divide in the country seems like it could couldn't get any deeper, posts hinting at the death of a political opponent seem to cross an imaginary line of civility, if it still exists in the country. But individuals who tweet out these posts have often weighed the risks and have determined that they um, play to their base. Well, the Rhode Island Democrats and Coin McCoy did not immediately respond to after hours emails. Uh, asking for a response or whether or not there was any regret. The tweet was initially screen grabbed by a reporter from the Free Beacon. In other developments, the White House hit its 70th percent um, uh, vaccination goal nearly a month late, but nonetheless hit. And Tucker Carlson Carlson rather makes the point that science is not seeking um, uh, is a seeking of truth, not a political directive. Well, the head of the National Institutes of Health is suggesting that parents wear masks at home to protect unvaccinated children. Dr. Francis Collins said it's clear that the Delta variant is capable of causing serious illness in kids while addressing whether young children should avoid indoor situations. He noted that while rare, there are many examples of young people being sickened by the virus and cited new recommendations for kids under 12 to avoid being in places where they might get infected and recommendations for universal masking at schools and even for adults at home. 
I'm not sure parents are quite ready for that. Parents of unvaccinated kids should be thoughtful about this. And the recommendation is to wear masks there as well. Referring to home, uh, Colin said while appearing on CNN. I know that's uncomfortable. I know it seems weird, but it is best way to protect your kids. End quote. Well, as of the 27th of last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommending that anyone over age two, regardless of vaccination status, wear masks in public indoor settings. In guidance updated in the middle of July, the agency recommended that the best way to protect children too young to be vaccinated was for adult relatives to get themselves vaccinated and to make sure that children um, wear a mask in public settings. Now you hear the uh, NIH director suggesting that wearing a mask at home by parents is the directive. A little confusion out there as to what to do. And my guess is there'll be significant resistance to parents wearing masks at home. Well, Americans are willing to take pay cuts to never go into the office again. That's according to Bloomberg. What would you sacrifice to be able to work from home forever? Well, a new survey shows that many Americans say they'd be willing to take reduced salaries, give up days off or put in more hours for a job that offers a fully remote option. After more than a year of full or partial remote work in many white collar industries and note white collar industries, employers are trying to get workers back to the office, even as the Delta coronavirus variant takes hold across the U.S. To entice workers back, some companies are holding back to work parties, dishing out prizes, providing free lunch or child care or even offering yoga classes. That wouldn't do it for me. Well, some workers aren't too fond of the prospect, whether they're concerned about their health, have domestic responsibilities that keep them home or simply don't want to return to an unwelcome commute. An online survey commissioned by Breeze, an insurance company, found that 65 percent of American workers who said their jobs could be done entirely remotely are willing to take a pay cut of 5 percent, which would represent several years of annual raises to stay home. I mean, they've done it now for over a year in many cases. Well, the online survey was conducted by the polling firm Pollfish uh, from the 20th and 21st of July. It included responses from about a thousand people who said they were employed or looking for work at a job that can be completely or completed rather entirely remotely. Most people said they wouldn't give up more than 5%, but 15% of respondents said they'd be willing to shave off 25% of their salary to be remote. Nearly half, or 46%, said that they would give up a quarter of their days off, and 15% said that they would give up all paid time off to be able to work from home. Well, we'll see how that works long term. Well, a police officer died after being stabbed during an attack at a transit station outside the Pentagon today, according to multiple reports. The attack occurred on a metro bus platform on the Pentagon complex, a major entrance to the Pentagon used by thousands of personnel every day. One Associated Press reporter near the building heard multiple gunshots, while another AP journalist heard police yelling, shooter. It is um, unclear who may have fired the shots. A spokesperson uh, would not comment on whether the shooter had been involved in the attack or if people had been injured. Uh, However, Arlington Fire and EMS wrote in a tweet that they did encounter multiple patients while responding to an active violent incident in the area of the Pentagon metro area. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
Coming up in our second hour today, we're going to hear a classic interview with Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith. Stick around for that. It's cost him a great deal, and yet he is not um, he's not shaken. Well, continuing to look at uh, some of the day's news, the Biden administration is going to announce a new targeted moratorium on housing evictions. Multiple outlets reported a previous moratorium on evictions by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention expired just a couple of days ago on the 31st. The moratorium was initially instituted in September of 2020 to limit coronavirus transmission by reducing the movement of people. Well, the new moratorium will be targeted to places with high coronavirus transmission, according to sources. Details of the order were not immediately available, Um, says the president uh, speaking to reporters at a press conference today. I've indicated to the CDC that I'd like them to look at other alternatives than the one currently in existence. The administration has previously signaled that it does not have the legal authority to extend the expired moratorium in its entirety. But that hasn't stopped uh, administrations in the past of the uh, the program for uh, undocumented minors in the country, the president, then Obama, said, I do not have the authority to do anything with it and then exercised authority he had already declared he didn't have. So in a June ruling, the Supreme Court, you might recall, upheld the moratorium extension until the end of July. The Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh joined the court's three liberal justices and upholding that moratorium. However, Kavanaugh wrote that any new extensions would need clear and specific congressional authorization, which is a puzzle to me because members of Congress, the House in particular, are really frustrated that the executive hasn't done something about it or the CDC hasn't uh, extended the moratorium, um, given what the Supreme Court has said when they themselves have the authority to establish uh, the the eviction moratorium. Well, Congress didn't give um, the authorization for a total moratorium on evictions over the weekend, leading to condemnation from progressive Democrats. And uh, there it stands. But the executive under pressure is trying to come up with something to appease his now critics from his own side of the aisle. Meanwhile, Meghan McCain on a hypothetical Kamala Harris run to replace uh, President Biden. Ron DeSantis, she says, would put her in the ground. Perhaps an unfortunate choice of words. Well, the new California pig law could lead to 50 percent price spike for pork producers. A Republican study group calls the $1 trillion infrastructure bill a Trojan horse for the Democrats. And a federal labor official recommends Amazon workers hold a new vote. The Labor Relations Board recommended nullifying the results of a closely watched vote by which Amazon.com Inc. warehouse workers in Alabama rejected a plan to join a union. Well, high prices at New York, New Jersey airports has triggered a probe. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey ordered an audit of high priced food and beverage items at three major airports after customers complained online. Well, the Biden administration is sending some mixed messages on lockdowns. Uh, We've been clear we're not going back to the shutdowns on March of March of 2020. Jen Psaki stated, we are not going back to the economy shutting down, saying we've made too much progress. Too many people are vaccinated. There's been too much progress on the economic front. But again, Psaki added, President Biden has said from the beginning that we are going to be guided by the science, guided by our public health experts, and we're not going to take options off the table of what they may recommend. So is she is or is she ain't? I'm not entirely clear. Well, turns out the Biden administration and CDC are apparently involved in a behind the scenes finger pointing as they struggle with figuring out how to deal with the latest 
Kevin McCullough says the White House is out of gas. They have no plan to solve any of the major crises we're facing, much less those actions of their own policies have caused to worsen. Immigration comes to mind. So what can they do? Deny science, claim authority and and uh, um, fear uh, into another lockdown or fear you into another lockdown, masking up existence uh, of misery this time. We know more, a lot more, and we should not comply. And then you have the NAH saying, Mom and Dad, you need to wear a mask in the house. Well, New York Post columnist Markowitz claims that masking kids is abusive. She notes in the story, kids unlucky enough to live in blue states and states were subjected to the anti-science mania of gentry liberals and the uh, crave, cravenness of political leaders beholden to teachers unions. A McKinsey study released last week surveyed the damage. It concluded that school closures left students on average five months behind in mathematics and four months behind in reading by the end of the school year. She later tweeted, if you're a blue check on the left who um, who has been in my DMS in the last year, quietly agreeing with me, now is the time to come out and say so. Don't ruin another year for kids because you're scared your tribe will criticize you. Do the right thing. She wrote on Twitter. Well, the first eight days of the Olympic Games have proven to be a ratings nightmare, off 48 percent from 2016. A New York teachers union says you can't require teachers to be vaccinated. The same union that didn't want teachers in the classroom for an entire year. Meanwhile, the New York Times finally admitted data indicates the non-vaccinated range in party affiliation after all. Hundreds of illegal aliens are crowded under a Texas bridge from that story in the Daily Wire. Shocking photos and drone footage posted on social media show hundreds of migrants waiting to be processed by Customs Border Protection being held under a bridge in the scorching Texas heat, a line that at least one immigration reporter called the largest group we've ever seen. From later in the story, Julio Rosas, who also um, frequently covers the border, noted that he has witnessed lines under the uh, International Bridge before, but nothing like what um, the uh, drone captured over the weekend. Rosas also noted that hot weather typically um, immigration slows in the summer months because of the uh, arid conditions in the Rio Grande Valley. But according to Border Patrol numbers, that is not the case in 2021. From Congressman Steve Scalise, remember when Democrats and the media told you the surge of illegal border crossings would stop during the summer months? That was another lie. Joe Biden has failed to secure the border. Now we're facing an inflicted covid super spreader, a national security event. Nikki Haley says migrants are pouring over the border, but that doesn't seem to be a problem for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who, by the way, is in charge of identifying the root causes. An ESPN writer is uh, confused as to why so many people hate the soccer player Megan Rapinoe, who hates the country. Well, ESPN's Katie Barnes, who is also named LGBTQ Journalist of the Year in 2017, tweeted, There are some people out there who really hate Megan Rapinoe. I will never understand why folks get so pressed over someone whom they will likely never meet and who has uh, no bearing on their lives or livelihood. Well, Franklin Graham says the U.S. women's Olympic soccer team lost to Canada for the first time in 20 years. I think a lot, a lot of people saw it coming. It seems they've lost their focus and instead became more focused on political wokeness and using the Olympic stage to promote their agendas. New Mexico's governor, I can't read that, sorry. 
New Mexico's governor threatens to take over school boards that reject mask mandates. Democrat Governor Michelle Luan Grisham is upset that some school boards are giving their schools a choice. Well, grocery stores are updating their mask policies, uh, though Whole Foods is the only one requiring masks in all states. Otherwise, it depends on the state. You live in a state with Democrats in charge. Mask up. Seven counties in the Bay Area are now mask only zones. Well, the Biden administration is being uh, forced to answer questions on the planned Obama birthday bash as if they were somehow involved in the organizing. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki struggled to justify the party as uh, they tell everyone else to stay home. Even Piers Morgan jumped into the fight, calling Obama shamefully selfish and incredibly reckless. Well, they are following covid protocols by all accounts. A new Carolina uh, a California law will make it harder for restaurants to get bacon and other pork products. At the beginning of next year, California will begin enforcing an animal welfare proposition approved overwhelmingly by voters in 2018 that requires more space for breeding pigs, egg laying chickens and veal calves. National veal and egg producers are optimistic they can meet the new standards, but only four percent of hog operations now comply with the new rules. Unless the courts intervene on the uh, or the state temporarily allows non-compliant meat to be sold in the state, California will lose almost all of its pork supply, much of which comes from Iowa and pork producers will face higher costs to regain a key market. Eric Erickson points out, I think pork producers should just stop serving California and give them exactly what they voted for. Stop protecting voters from the consequences of their votes. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we return, Jack Phillips, the cost of my faith. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned earlier, I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I know you will uh, enjoy it as well. Joining me is Jack Phillips. He is the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court, as well as Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom and has been a part of this case that is so familiar to so many of us over this period of time. One of the questions that I think many of us have uh, thought and many have asked is why not just bake the cake? Well, that's a question that lots of people across the country started asking back in 2012 when Jack Phillips uh, told two men who walked into his masterpiece cake shop that he couldn't create a custom cake for their same-sex wedding. Now, most of us know that story. The question only grew more urgent as um, he had to defend himself first uh, before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and then numerous courts losing every step of the way until the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in his favor in June of 2018. Well, he has written a book about this odyssey, and I'm so delighted that we have an opportunity to learn more. When Jack Phillips opened his masterpiece cake shop in 1993. He gave it the name that reflected his intentional blending of culinary skill and artistic talent, all for the glory of God. Well, he and his wife, Debbie, have three grown children and make their home in Colorado. Uh, Jack joins us today to talk about the cost of my faith, how a decision in my cake shop took me to the Supreme Court, along with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom in this cake. Jack and Jonathan, thank you both for joining us today. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having us. I don't want to assume that all of our listeners are familiar with this case. So let's begin before the beginning. Maybe, Jack, you can fill us in a little bit about Masterpiece Cake Shop, what your dream and vision was for the the, uh, uh, the cake shop that brought you to the conflict that made your name virtually a household name for many. So 
go back to 1993 when we opened the shop or farther back. I graduated high school in 1974. I needed a job, and a man that lived across the street from me owned a large wholesale bakery, like 100 employees, and imagine conveyor belts with donuts and Danish and just a lot of activity and huge amount of products. And I fell in love with baking. I thought this was just a great job. And then a year or two down the road, he bought out another bakery and brought in cake decorating. And I had never seen that, but I knew that would be my future because I have an art art background. I love to do art, paint, draw, sculpt, all those things. And when I saw that, I thought, that cake is you know, my new canvas. And so I'm going to open a bakery someday. And immediately I knew the name of it. It would be Masterpiece Cake Shop because Masterpiece says art and cake shop says cakes and you wouldn't come into the shop looking for a loaf of bread or a or a pie <laughs> but you would hopefully come in and uh, know that it was a place where you could get an artistic cake to celebrate your uh, special occasions you're now n- largely known as a christian baker because of events that occurred when two men walked into your cake shop asking for uh, a cake to be designed for a ceremony that you could not embrace tell us about that day that for you and your family changed everything well, that day was, it was a beautiful July afternoon here in Denver, and um, like every other day, I had two men that came in, well, not like every other day, but every day we have people that come in, and mm-hmm. we're glad to serve everybody who comes in. This day, two men were sitting at our wedding desk, and it's an area where we have uh, tiered cakes and wedding cakes set up, where we do consultations, and not just for weddings, but for other events as well. We'll, we'll sit down, and we'll draw, and we'll sculpt, uh, we'll sketch, and make, you know, make clear the ideas that we're going to create on a cake. So anyway, I walked around the desk and sat down opposite these two men and, and I introduced myself. They gave me their names. And then one of them said, you know, we're here to look at wedding cakes. And the other one jumped in and like, yeah, and it's for our wedding. And I immediately knew what my response was going to be because this was not a cake that we could create. Back in, uh, before 1993, when he opened it, my wife and I had you know, laid some ground rules. There are cakes that we will create, cakes that we won't including we don't create cakes that celebrate Halloween or that are un-American or racist or that denigrate or degrade or insult other people. And we also talked about that we wouldn't create cakes that celebrate same-sex weddings, even though back in 1993 it was illegal. It wasn't legal in the United States. It was illegal in the state of Colorado. So we knew, we didn't think that would ever come up. But here it was facing me. And so I knew what my answer would be. I'm sorry, guys, I don't create cakes for same-sex weddings. And they looked at me, you know, stunned, kind of blankly, and like, what did you just say? I said, well, I'll sell you birthday cakes, shower cakes, sell you cookies and brownies. I just don't do cakes for same-sex weddings. And one of them jumped up, flipped me off, started swearing, stormed out the door. The other one got up, stormed out the other door, and, and just left me absolutely stunned. It's like 29 words and 20 seconds, and it just changed my whole life. Yeah, you probably could not have anticipated at that point what would follow. But let me ask you the question that so many have asked, not understanding your conviction. Why not just bake the cake? I mean, it's it's sugar, it's flour. Why not bake the cake? What's the difference? Well, it's more than just sugar and flour and eggs. It's it's like I said, it's my canvas. It's what I create art on. And we sit down with the, with the customer and we decide, you know, what's a special event? It might be grandma's birthday and you want to show how much you love her because um, this is the way you want to do it. But we'll, we'll figure out what is grandma like, you know, what would make this cake really special and show that, that special message for her. And in this case, uh, the wedding cake 
in itself, a wedding cake by itself has an inherent message. If you mm -hmm. were at a hotel room and you walked in, opened the door to a conference room and looked in the corner and there's a cake sitting on the table, you would know that that was a wedding was to be celebrated there. You wouldn't think it's a business meeting. You would know instinctively just by seeing that, that wedding cake that there's a wedding taking place. So the wedding cake itself has an inherent message. And this was a message for a, to celebrate a view of marriage that goes against my biblical view, my biblical belief of marriage and what the Bible teaches. And uh, so it was a message that I couldn't create. And so I tried in those few sentences to tell these men, I'll serve you anything else. You know, you're welcome. I'll make other custom cakes. But I can't create cakes that express messages that go against my faith. Now, Jonathan, you're an attorney. Talk a little bit about the legal ramifications of making the announcement that I have declined to create a certain kind of cake that that contradicts my biblical worldview. Talk a little bit about the, the legal challenge that followed. Yeah, so, uh, as Jack noted, when he declined to create that cake, he was essentially sued by uh, the government. Uh, it was put through an administrative process uh, through the state and accused of violating Colorado's public accommodation law, which bans discrimination. And that's essentially what the state accused him of doing. Uh, and our defense was simple, uh, that Jack doesn't, uh, Jack serves everyone. Uh, he, he just doesn't convey all messages that are requested of him. This is no different than an LGBT artist who is declines to create artwork condemning same-sex marriage, right? No one, the government shouldn't force that. It shouldn't force Jack e either. So that case proceeded up through the system and eventually uh, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the U.S. Supreme Court said that uh, Colorado officials treated Jack unfairly, that they showed hostility toward his religious beliefs, both in what they said and also in how they treated him unfairly compared to other uh, bakers and other artists. Um, and, and we won. So Jack can fill in a little bit about those details. But the overall ruling of the case is, you know, the government shouldn't force people to speak messages they disagree with that violates their core convictions. And that's a freedom that should apply to both sides and on all different views. Well, it seems like the Supreme Court decision should put an end to the argument uh, and that this should be a, a done deal that you don't you cannot be forced by the government. Uh, to produce something that conflicts with your core values. Is that the end, or is this an ongoing debate across the country? Uh, unfortunately, it's an ongoing debate. Uh, you would think that a U.S. Supreme Court decision would settle it, but you have seen governments, even in Jack's situation, but also across the country, try to apply these similar laws to force other artists to speak messages they disagree with. Uh, but you also see courts squarely ruling in the favor of these artists, uh, such as there's a court in Arizona, a court in Minnesota that ruled in favor of these decisions. And, of course, Jack is being sued again uh, most recently. He just recently went through a trial uh, because he was uh, basically someone requested him to uh, create a cake celebrating a gender transition, which Jack declined. So we're seeing these uh, incidents pop up all, all across the country. We are continuing to defend them. We're continuing to defend Jack uh, because the free, First Amendment and free speech are on his side. We're talking with Jack Phillips with Masterpiece Cake Shop. And, of course, he's the author of the, uh, the new book, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Also joining us, Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, without which uh, we, we'd be in a bad way. They do some tremendous work defending religious freedom and other issues of great concern. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jonathan Scruggs, who is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, and Jack Phillips. He is the author most recently of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. Now, what was it like to be confronted uh, in your own cake shop and holding to a biblical worldview and that becoming such a controversy that ultimately it led you through many courts and uh, finally the Supreme Court with this still being unresolved? What was that like for you, Jack Phillips, a man of faith, a man of conviction? And yeah, it is my faith that compels all my actions, you know, the way I treat my employees, the way I treat my customers, the way I treat my marriage or handle my money. And for that faith to be attacked by the government like this and drugged through the courts for these many years was just really unthinkable. Um, but we've had to uh, go through these court systems, and we've been through, uh, we're in our third lawsuit that uh, Jonathan was just talking about, where an attorney here in Colorado uh, called us up and requested a custom cake, uh, blue on the outside and pink on the inside, and those colors were to celebrate um, a gender transition. And when we told us, uh, person that that's not a cake that we could create. It's the message of the cake. But that person was welcome in our store, and we did create other um, events, uh, cakes for other events. That person mm-hmm. sued us through the same Civil Rights Commission. That case was eventually dismissed, and then this attorney, rather than uh, the state dismissed it, and this attorney, rather than appeal that dismissal, uh, decided to sue us personally in civil court. So we're in that court now. And part of the thinking of this person was to correct the errors in my thinking. And that was one of the basis of the uh, lawsuit. Hmm. Now, you lost a significant part of your business because uh, of uh, the decision you made to stand firmly in your faith and oppose making uh, a cake that reflected something that you could not embrace. Talk a little bit about how you have navigated in your community and the impact that all of this has had on your business. It was a significant ruling against us back in the first stage when the administrative law court ruled against us that I had uh, violated this law. And they said that I had to um, change my policies, I had to retrain my staff, and I had to report to the uh, commission quarterly for two years on the um, the effectiveness of my retraining. Um, part of the uh, wedding business was that... Uh, um, or the part of the business that lost was the wedding business because the commission said that if I'm going to create wedding cakes, I have to create them for everybody. Also included with that was that I wouldn't be able to be included in the the design. So if a a couple came in, same sex or heterosexual, and they wanted, say, an adult theme on their cake or a pornographic theme, I wouldn't have the choice of creating that. I would have to do it. And, uh, that's something that we couldn't do. So we either had to agree to create every cake that came to us or uh, drop our lucrative wedding business, which was a large percentage of our business at that time. So we dismissed our wedding business, and uh, um, God's been faithful to cover all of our stuff beyond that. At the same time, I also had 10 employees, and after we were after we lost our wedding business, we were down to four employees, including myself. So there were some... Um, deep ramifications that came with that decision. Making the decision to decline making a cake uh, for a same-sex wedding ceremony (laughs) has been very costly. In fact, you could not have anticipated how costly it would have uh, ultimately be. Let me ask you if you've ever 
um, second guess that decision and what the cost has been for you, for your business and for your family? You know, honestly, we have never second guessed it. When Before we started the cake shop, we knew what those lines would be that we couldn't cross. And this was one of them. We couldn't cross it then. We couldn't cross it now. And I've never once thought, well, maybe I should have just made the cake. The decision that we made was right. But it has been a costly decision. Um, we had 10 employees before this all happened. We were down to four, including myself. Um, we lost our uh very lucrative wedding business, which was a large percentage of our income. And uh, it was, yeah, some hard hard ramifications from that, but the uh, the decision was easy and the decision was right. I, I know a lot of um, believers in particular who just want to stay out of the, the spotlight. If we just don't say anything, if we just keep our heads down, we can avoid the kind of challenge that you have obviously um, had to live with. Uh, where did the courage come from to make that initial pronouncement? You know, I can't make this cake for you. I'm willing to serve you in any other way. Uh, and then to stay the course, which has been a very long and arduous process that ultimately led you to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, part of that um, was preparation that uh, of our deci- from our decision early on that we wouldn't create cakes to celebrate Halloween, some of the other cakes that we decided not to create. Uh, people would ask us for adult-themed cakes. We already knew we weren't going to make those. So, you know, we have to turn those away and graciously offer, you know, other products or other designs. And the Halloween thing, that comes up every year, multiple times, September, October. You get a request for cakes that we had decided not to do. So God was gracious in that and giving us the practice in saying, this is not a cake that we can create because of our religious beliefs, our deeply held religious convictions. And so we were prepared when the big one came. And then standing up for it, you know, the options were you either stand up for it or you fold or you close the shop or the state finds you or whatever and, and you lose the shop. And all of those were costs we were willing to take. But we couldn't go back and change the decision, and we wouldn't. How have you seen God work during this uh, very challenging season? Um, I write about some of them in The Cost of My Faith, mm-hmm. but I think that one of the, the main things that he's done with us, helping us grow in our, our faith, um, was providing for all of our needs without the wedding business and without all those things, but also providing Alliance Defending Freedom to come in and stand beside us and help us through all this. Um, Alliance Defending Freedom defends all their clients pro bono, which means for free, but it's not free. They, they use donations to help fight these battles, and these are not just... This is not just my battle. I realized when we were going to the uh, Supreme Court trying to make that decision, you know, should we petition the court or not? And the odds of getting selected by the court are less than 1%. They just don't take, they turn away mm-hmm. over 7,000 of the 8,000 cases. Or, you know, seven or 8,000 cases are presented every year, and they take about 70. So the odds of getting there are, are slim. And I thought, well, we're already not there. Why don't we petition? The worst that could happen is that we're officially not there. And they said, no, the worst that could happen is they grant your case, and then you lose. And at that point, I realized that this was more than just Jack and his cakes. This is right for every American to be free to live and work according to their conscience without fear of punishment from the government and not have to express messages that they don't agree with. And so watching God prepare us and then bringing ADF to help and the advice and help that they've given us all the way through, just small examples of of the ways that he's helped us grow and protected us through this whole thing. 
you know, most of us are aware of the challenge uh, of the uh, that came when you made that decision and that announcement and everything that followed. But how has God used this situation to uh, generate conversation or to give you opportunities to share your faith? Has there been that side of this whole conflict as well? Oh, there has been right from the first, like the very first Saturday, the two men came in on Thursday and then on that following Saturday, I was getting all these crazy, hateful, weird phone calls. But then I got a call in the middle of the day from a man who identified himself as an atheist from somewhere up northwest uh, United States. And, and we had a conversation that was like 45 minutes long. And I, I gave him the gospel, you know, three or four different ways. Or another day, um, a radio station, a local station, did a broadcast from our show, a live broadcast from our shop. And one of the first men that came in at 5 o'clock that morning identif- identified himself, said, my name is Mike Jones, and I'm a gay man, and I came to see what's going on here. Hi, Mike, how are you? And we struck up a conversation, and he came back later that day, and we've become friends ever since. And what makes that unique is that Mike Jones was a former gay activist, and he's <laughs> on our side now, and he even testified for us in the last... Uh, court case back in March. And it's just amazing the platform that God has given us. We're going to need to take a break, so uh, we'll uh, do that right now. But we will continue our conversation with Jack Phillips, author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. The book is published by Regnery. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He's an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom, has done uh, extraordinary work in this case and many others to protect uh, religious freedom. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Phillips. He's the author of The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. We're also talking with Jonathan Scruggs. He is an attorney with Alliance Defending Freedom. Jonathan, we are familiar with Jack Phillips' case, and many of us have followed Masterpiece Cake Shop over the years. How common is this um, this challenge becoming, and is are we close to a, a time in which the question of whether or not uh, an artist, for example, is free to decline to produce art that does not uh, comport with their um, deeply and sincerely held beliefs. Well, unfortunately, it is a comic occurrence that you see these type of government entities, these commissions, these legis- uh, administrative bodies going after artists, particularly people of faith, uh, because they can't promote messages they disagree with. Uh, I noted earlier uh, we won a case in Arizona on behalf of an art studio, a painter and a calligrapher, uh, also a case on behalf of two filmmakers in Minnesota, but the cases are ongoing. Uh, there's photographer cases in Kentucky and Virginia, and just recently a new case was filed in the state of New York. Uh, but so far we've won a, a vast majority of these cases under the simple principle that uh, free speech shouldn't be just for those who agree with the government. Uh, it should apply to both sides. It should go both ways. And that that's a winning message, both in the courtroom but also more broadly. I think people understand that we can't have these freedoms be selective, that in order for our democracy to work, we've got to protect people regardless of their views, regardless if they're popular today or, or popular tomorrow. Uh, and those are important principles that we're defending uh, throughout all these cases, and particularly in Jack's case. Now, Jack mentioned that you uh, worked with him pro bono, but the services you provide are not cost-free. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I've financially contributed to Alliance Defending Freedom because I believe very strongly in what you all do. For people who want to support 
your work, certainly with Jack Phillips and others, what's the best way for them to learn more as well as to help support your ongoing efforts? Uh, the best way is to visit our website, www.adflegal.org, and you can learn about all our cases and what things we're doing. And or also, if you'd like to contribute your time or prayers or, or monetary funds, we appreciate that as well. Let me ask you, Jack, what do you say to people who are afraid, who are afraid of being confronted, being challenged, having to stand up uh, for the sake of the gospel and say, this is where I draw the line, I will go no further. Because it is a frightening thing to consider the weight of um, civil government or, the, or any uh, opposition that might come when we as followers of Jesus decide, I'm going to be a man or woman of conviction. Well, like I said, the, uh, my wife and I drew our lines in the sand and, and we knew which ones you know, we could cross or which one yes. we could move, but, you know, some are firmly drawn and, and they, we can't move them, we can't cross them. Um, even, like, looking at the prospect of the uh, ruling in the case that we're at, if it goes against us, um, if, well, actually, if I win, the lawyer who's suing me told me face-to-face in a mediation meeting and under oath in court that if I were to win this case, um, I would get a phone call the very next day and we'd go, we'd start all over again. Even knowing that's coming, I can't cross that line because you have to know which lines you're going to cross, which lines you're not, and they have to be worth it. And uh, Jesus Christ is worth that standing on the side, on the right side of the line for. What has life been like for you since the Supreme Court, and certainly with these pen, the pending case that you've been referencing, uh, and how has that impacted your faith? Uh, it's it's been good for. Me. For my faith, my family, my wife, my daughters, um, our whole family has grown closer together, and we just, you know, we, we build each other up, we hold each other accountable for things, and uh, God has just helped us out through this whole thing. So um, it's, it's been a profitable experience that way, that God has really taken care of us and blessed us and drawn us closer to Him. Have you had opportunities to share your testimony um, in settings that would not have been available to you had this not occurred? Uh, yeah, many times. And now with the cost of my faith, my testimony is, is in there as clearly as I could write it in Chapter 7. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's the, uh, I've had people tell me they read Chapter 7 first. And <laughs> I want to share my, my testimony as many ways as I can and this is one of them, and face-to-face with people who come into the shop and ask me these same questions. Why didn't you just make the cake? And then we can open up this conversation. Have you had any pushback from uh, men and women of faith who uh, think, you know, this is uh, small potatoes, you should have baked the cake, um, or do you find broad support within the believing community? Broad support within the community, but still some detractors who say, you know, Jesus would have baked a cake, and um, that came up on a TV show that I did an interview on, and and I don't believe he would have. I'm sure he wouldn't have, because that would make him contradict his own word. And so I try and point those kind of issues out to uh, people who identify as Christians, that uh, that's not a Christian principle, that Jesus wouldn't do that, and he doesn't. He doesn't want us to um, go along with this um, ideology either, that we should you know, well, we, we need to be follow him. Men and women of conscience and violating one's conscience is not a uh, thing that I would uh, certainly advise, nor does Scripture. Uh, Jonathan Scruggs, let me ask you what to anticipate moving forward. Obviously, Jack is facing another uh, a court challenge. Um, what do you anticipate happening there? 
And uh, how does that uh, reflect what's going on elsewhere with regard to artists being uh, pressured into violating their own conscience? Sure. Well, as we've talked about, Jack uh, recently got done with a trial uh, in uh, a lower court in Colorado, and we're waiting for a ruling uh, from that case. Uh, could happen any day in the upcoming weeks, and then potentially that case could be appealed up to the next level, whether it be the Colorado Court of Appeals, Colorado Supreme Court, or the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so these issues are going to be resolved, and then you have a nationwide perspective where you've got the Equality Act uh, that's being considered in Congress, which essentially would make the same law that Jack is being prosecuted under, would make it a nationwide law to allow any artist to be prosecuted uh, for holding beliefs that Jack holds. Um, so eventually, one of these cases, uh, whether it be Jack's case or these cases filtered out across the country in Virginia and New York, is going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court is going to decide the big issue here is that really do Americans have freedom to bring their faith into their workplace uh, or can the government compel them to address ideas and ideologies and to favor ideologies they disagree with. Uh, so we look forward to that day and we're confident that the arguments that we're making in these court cases will be accepted by them and eventually accepted by the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, these are such huge issues. If you're tempted to dismiss this because we're talking about a cake being baked, uh, don't underestimate the significance of uh, what we're talking about here, because it does have very broad implications. And as you pointed out, uh, Jonathan, uh, those have the potential to reach into virtually every area of life when you're talking about the expression of faith in the public square. Uh, Again, the book that we've been talking about, The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. And I, I so appreciate you're letting us sit in on this whole process. I think for many of us, we couldn't even imagine being in the situation that you found yourself in by simply stating, you know, this is one thing I can't do. I can do 15 other things, but this one thing I can't do. And not surprisingly, it uh, it ultimately took you all the way to the Supreme Court. And these issues are still very active all across the country. Uh, Jack, let me ask you in closing, what's your message to our listeners today who may find themselves in a similar situation with the details on the particular being quite different, but being called upon to stand firmly on their conviction and faith um, that may lead them into places they, uh, uh, they, they at this point couldn't imagine. What's, what's your word to, to the rest of us? Well, one of my uh, favorite verses is Second Chronicles 16.9, and it says that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen the man whose heart is fully committed to him. And he's shown himself faithful to that. He's shown us his strength. He's shown his strength through us. And because our heart is fully committed to him. And I would just encourage people to, uh, you know, get to know him, read their Bibles, spend time in, in the Word and in prayer and fellowship with other believers to get to know who he, who this God is and who we serve and to do our best to serve him with our whole hearts. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack, I appreciate your sharing your story and your uh, willingness to stand up for many of us uh, in the court and uh, continue to do so. Again, the book is The Cost of My Faith, How a Decision in My Cake Shop Took Me to the Supreme Court. I also want to thank Jonathan Scruggs, who along with ADF have uh, stood and, and supported Jack Phillips, representing him in court and so many others across the country. You do extraordinary work, and I'm grateful that you're willing to do that. Thank you to both of you for talking with us today. Thank you, Georgine. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the election law is arguably the most significant legislative battle of this moment in American history. Democrats have loosened things to the point that elections are no longer trusted or trustworthy and Republicans want to rein it back in. Well, that's one description. Well, the battles at the state level are pretty intense and sometimes, as in Texas, full of Hysterical theatrics, whether or not they're making a difference or proving a point, remains to be seen. Well, way back in 2002, Republicans controlled all of Washington. Democrats clung to the hope provided them in a book called The Emerging Democratic Majority. Well, in that book, political guru uh, John B. Judas and Roy uh, Tixiera, or something like that, argued that demographic and economic trends meant political trends would soon favor Democrats. Well, they were right. Indeed, it wasn't long before Democrats took over all of Washington, but it also wasn't long, just two years before that unified control pretty much shattered. Well, nevertheless, Democrats persist in their belief that they are entitled to a permanent majority. And in fact, many of the initiatives that we're witnessing today would ensure that immigration, uh, election laws and others, the Supreme Court packing and and, uh, and others. Well, that background explains some of the motivation behind efforts like bulk mail balloting and legislation like H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, all of which are efforts to write election rules in such a way as to guarantee that the Democrats win. In other words, well, the game is, well, skewed, if you will. And as always, um, the GOP efforts to counter this are being characterized as Republicans um, restricting voting rights and the like. Republicans have decided that the only way they can win is by preventing American citizens from voting. That's a quote from Elizabeth Warren complaining back in June. Well, other Democrats have leveled the same charges regarding things like requiring an ID to vote. Horrors of horrors. Well, Joe Biden echoed that in July. They want to make it so hard and inconvenient that they hope people don't vote at all. That's the motivation we're being told. In fact, he added the reality that several states had enacted election integrity measures was a 21st century Jim Crow assault on democracy itself. Well, he's assigned the Jim Crow epithet to election integrity numerous times, though we can't seem to decide if that or the January 6th Capitol riot constitutes the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. And just so you know, that's hyperbole. He added that's not hyperbole. Well, for the record, the real racists there are the uh, those who are suggesting that minorities like myself are somehow less able to obtain an ID. Now, under the uh, efforts, which, by the way, were led by Democrats back in the day to prevent blacks and others from voting, um, the um, voting test and other uh, elements were there have been genuine efforts to prevent segments of our population from voting. What we're witnessing today is not one of them. The presumption that certain segments of the population, for the most part, minorities, African-Americans are unable uh, to obtain whatever is necessary to cast a, a legitimate ballot is not only insulting, but it's getting a little wearisome. Well, back to the states. At least 41 states have made changes to their election laws already this year following the contentious 2020 election. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Republicans who control far more state houses than Democrats have sponsored 114 bills to Democrats 86. Well, not all of those changes are significant, but some are. Many of the GOP bills are simply rolling back some of the expansions and expectations put in place as the nation dealt with the once in a century pandemic. Well, on Monday, more than 100 
Democrat state lawmakers rallied in Washington to promote H.R. 1 and grossly misnamed for the People Act. Well, many of those um, are from Texas and they've been in Washington for weeks, derelict in their duty for having fled their state to prevent a quorum and a vote on election legislation. And Republican Governor Greg Abbott promised to continue calling special sessions as long as needed to pass the bill. In other words, if they ever come back and the presumption is at some point they will, they'll just call a special session. Now, that may mean they run off to Washington, D.C. again, but. Until um, the legislature meets and there's a quorum, the governor has promised that he'll continue calling special sessions. Well, ironically, these state level representatives want the federal government to override their state's sovereignty. In other words, do their job for them in passing election laws. They're putting a party over the people. Now, this is the legislature that was elected by the people of the state of Texas to represent their respective interests from the district. Their lawmakers in the House and the Senate uh, represent. For the people, indeed, well, their efforts are all in the service of one agenda, and that is uh, obtaining for one political party, party uh, power, rather, by any means necessary. And it is an interesting point of political history uh, that the midterm elections may radically change in the days ahead. May not. We don't uh, we don't really know. We're not there yet. Anyway, this is being referred to as the election war between the states. Not the civil war, so to speak, but the election war between the states, which mimics, at least in some uh, fashion, the division that we have in this country with regard to elections. The um, motives behind some of the reforms or uh, efforts to return to what was the case prior to the pandemic that allowed voting in much broader and less secure ways. Uh, Nonetheless, it's just one other representative um, conflict in our country that represents the divide that we uh, that we're witnessing. It is a sad fact of 21st century politics that I don't expect will change anytime soon. Now, the good news is while politics is important, what happens on either side of the political aisle and where we are in terms of liberal and conservative and all of that is important. I have to tell you, my hope does not lie in. I report on it because that's what my role is here. I talk about it because that's what this show is supposed to be about. But my confidence and my hope does not lie in the outcome of the next election or the last election. Uh, the latest initiative, that, and while I will say it's important, it will have broad implications as to its application all across the country in a variety of areas. Um, my um, confidence, my level of fear or peace is not determined by what happens in Washington or, for that matter, Olympia or Salem And thankfully, I'm experiencing a level of peace that surpasses even my own understanding. So I'm grateful for that. And I hope that's true for you as well. Political leaders will come and go. Movements will come and go. Fads will come and go. But there are some things that remain forever. And I've placed my trust and my hope in the one who never changes, who can always be relied upon uh, through his sovereign Uh, will and through the power he possesses, the grace and mercy expressed through his son and the opportunity for a lifelong fellowship. Uh, I've cast my ballot, if you will, my citizenship in that uh, area, and I hope you are doing the same. There are some frightening things uh, coming down the pike. And again, the implications of some of it, um, I shudder to think. But again, my hope does not lie in those things. I hope yours doesn't either. I think we need to be responsible in how we respond to what's going on around us. We need to be aware. But uh, the bottom line is, this isn't the end of the story. 
For those of us who are familiar with Scripture, we know what the end of the story is, so we can take a deep breath even now and be at peace. Just want to remind you that uh, there is an opportunity for you to enjoy some fellowship with uh, fellow believers on the family getaway. Uh, If you'd like to get away for a few days with your family to Colorado Springs, meet our friends at Focus on the Family during your trip. We're giving away a Focus on the Family VIP experience that includes round trip airfare for you and three family members to Colorado Springs, three nights at Great Wolf Lodge, VIP tour of Focus on the Family headquarters, lunch with Jim Daly, an opportunity to sit on a sit in rather on a Focus on the Family program and $300 Visa gift card. Log on to KPDQ's Family Club to enter today at KPDQ.com. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.